Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 17. And the title of today's message is The Test of Restriction. And as you know, when you were growing up, when we were growing up as kids, we were told things we, we shouldn't do and don't do this, don't touch that, don't go here. And sure enough, when we were told not to do something, we had, went ahead and did it anyway. And uh, whether it was to stay out late with our friends or whatever it was, we broke curfew, we did what we thought we needed to do, and we went past that test of restriction, and we did that as kids. And it's funny that, you know, we look at prophecy today and the restriction today about Israel is that the land belongs to Israel, the Temple Mount belongs to Israel, and yet we're seeing people say no to that restriction that God has put on that land and that Temple Mount, and he has declared from time immemorial that that land belongs to the Jews, and yet you see people who simply don't like that restriction and try to push past that as we're seeing today's conflict in the Middle East. What you're going to see today is the test of restriction with God setting up the test in the Garden of Eden. It's not just a one-time test for Adam and Eve. In principle, the test you and I will face all our entire lives is the test of restriction. And it's a continual battle for us as we walk our walk with the Lord. Our sin nature doesn't like someone telling us or even God telling us no. Our sin nature actually rebels against that. Now, Adam and Eve, you'll see, they don't have a sin nature at this point in time, but you and I, in this situation, we do. When we are told no, if our sin nature is not corralled or crucified or put to death, our sin nature will say, I'm going to push past that barrier. I'm going to test that water. I'm going to experience that. I don't like being told no. And if we don't get control of that, we will blow right through moral barriers. We will blow right through moral and ethical barriers. And so the test of restriction is a constant theme in our lives. And so we're going to focus on the one restriction. But I find it amazing that Adam and Eve will be given one restriction, just one restriction. And it's that restriction that they want to blow through. They have everything available to them, everything that God could possibly provide, except one thing that they think they want. And that's what starts happening to us. We start getting into our heads that, well, if we had this, if I had that, if I could experience this, then my life would be a lot easier. My life would be a lot better. Things would be better in my marriage. Things would be better at work or life would be less stressful if I just had this and you fill in the blank. And be careful about that. Some of those things may seem good to you may seem that, well, there's, it's morally neutral. Well, what's wrong with having a better job and better money and, or life being easier or having my health intact? Nothing wrong with that. But if that becomes an idolatry issue in your life, and that's something that you desire more than anything, it will consume you. It will be the restriction that you blow past, that you resent God for not giving you it. And so the topic we're studying right now goes extremely deep. It's easy to understand, but it's extremely deep. 
It's extremely profound. And the implications of wanting something that's out of bounds for us, wanting something that God has said no to us, and it could be an amoral issue. We're not even talking sometimes about immoral issues. We all know that's wrong. It could be something that's amoral that you think if you had, life would be easier. That could be the very thing that God is saying no to you today. He might be delaying it. He might say never, never is that going to happen. But if you start resenting God, if you start saying, why not? I would be so much better. You will blow through the restrictions. And you're going to see that happen later on with Adam and Eve. But first, we're going to see the setup of this test that has to happen. It is a test that's necessary for Adam and Eve. And it's a test that we all are having to go through in our own personal lives. So it will, it will make perfect application for us. It is, it is what we're dealing with today, man. Our setting is this. We're looking now at the environment that God is creating for Adam and Eve. And what the takeaway you want to get from this is that he's providing everything they could possibly want. Everything. It is an idyllic, perfect environment. You couldn't ask for better. And when God said it is very good, he means it's very good. And from his standpoint, it means it's idyllic. It is where we get the term paradise. You can't get better than what God created here. And yet, it's still a problem for Adam and Eve. It's paradise on earth. And yet, it's not enough. Wow. Let's look at the paradise as we continue on in this and look at the paradise that he's forming. We'll look at the great rivers that form that he makes and talk a little bit about this and then get into the single restriction. Let's start in verse 10. Verse 10 starts out, Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. And the idea then here is it's very much like we see in the book of Revelation with the living water that comes from the throne of God. And there's a single river in the New Jerusalem, and we've studied that before, the river of life, and it flows. Well, the one that God creates in paradise goes through the land of Eden. And we generally think, and again, this is speculation, we know we're nowhere in we're in the general area. The general area of Eden is right here. It's not in Europe, it's not in China, it's not in Australia or anything. And theoretically, there were no continents at this point in time. The theory is all the land masses were in one large land mass. Due to the flood and due to the different cataclysmic events that happened during the flood, the land broke apart. So imagine everything being put together. Well, basically, based on the rivers that you're going to see, we believe in this general area was the land of Eden. I'll pinpoint today where we think the Garden of Eden was, but you're looking at, you know, basically the Fertile Crescent and a lot of this is Arabia, but this is the area right there that we're focusing in on. Well, anyway, the rivers then part into four river heads. And the idea then is it kind of models what's in the New Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't say this in Revelation, but that river, it goes through the New Jerusalem But theologians theorize that the river breaks into four parts, and it hits all four areas of New Jerusalem, north, south, east, and west. Again, it doesn't say that specifically, but the theory is that, because it mirrors paradise. When paradise was created on earth, that one river, that river of life, parted four ways. 
and he's going to talk about that in just a bit. The four rivers will actually form the four borders of the land. Anyway, it's a typology for the New Jerusalem. Remember, the principle in, in, with the word Bereshit in Hebrew is it ends as it begins. That's the idea there. Let's look at the different rivers. Verse 11. The name of the first river is Pishon. It is the one that skirts the whole land of Havilah. Havilah, to look on a map, this was what was known as Havilah. This area right here. This is the Sinai Peninsula. This is Saudi Arabia today. Okay, This was considered by the ancients the land of Havilah. Now, as you know, Saudi Arabia is nothing but desert today. But again, you're going back pre-flood. And apparently, when Moses wrote this, and there's a lot of conjecture that Adam passed this down, and then Moses took this and, and put it into his creation account. The idea that the ancients knew where this was at. They knew where Havilah is at. That's why it's mentioning that. So it, when Moses puts it together, he assumes that the audience he's writing to, which would be the Exodus generation, knew where Havilah was at. And so the best estimate is this, is this area called Saudi Arabia. It wouldn't have looked like it today. It would have been a lush paradise, but they, they at least knew where this is at. And it says, back to the scriptures, it says where uh, there is gold there. And the gold of the land is good. And it says bedellium, which is kind of an aromatic kind of gum resin was there. And the onyx stone are there as well, it says. Now, why would it mention that? Well, it's interesting is that it's relating the land to the pre-fall conditions of the gem earth that was destroyed when Satan fell. And so when you see these remarks to gems, gold, the onyx, uh, these precious metals, this was a throwback, a remembrance of that time of the gem garden of Eden that Satan uh, was cast out of and fell and was destroyed. But these remnants are still left. It speaks of not only the remnant, but it speaks of the wealth of the land, that there's gold there, and that there's water, plenty of water. To the ancients, having these precious metals and water is a sign of luxury. It's a sign of paradise. It's a sign of heaven. You can't get better than that to them. Anyway, as we continue on, it says in verse 13, the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that goes around the whole land of Cush. Let me give you another picture of a map. Now, a lot of times when we study a Gog of Magog invasion, we talk about Cush being right down in here. And that might may be where Cush is at uh, in modern-day Ethiopia or Sudan. But a lot of guys I was reading recently have put the land of Cush right here in western Iran. That's interesting that I, I was reading some of these scholars saying that. That's interesting because the Gog of Magog uses Iran as one of the players. And Kush could possibly be Western Iran right in this area. Again, we're not for sure, but we know we're in the general vicinity. So if you had Western Iran and then you had Havilah right here, so you're looking at the land of Eden being right here. And somewhere in this fertile crescent area. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you do world history, the first civilizations you will ever study are the civilizations of Sumer out of the fertile crescent. It's not out of Africa. 
A lot of people say that man came out of Africa. He did not. All the archaeological evidence points that man came from the Fertile Crescent. The early writings of cuneiform writing and all the archaeological evidence points that the ancient civilizations came out of the Fertile Crescent area, which is exactly where the Garden of Eden was at. Where did Abraham come from? Right here, the Fertile Crescent. Where were the first cities that man built? Babylon and Nineveh, right there, all in the Fertile Crescent. It was God who took Abraham out of the Fertile Crescent and put him into the land of Canaan or the promised land right here. But Abraham transversed up here and came back down into the promised land later on, about you know 2,000 years from Adam and Eve. Okay, so basically we have the rivers that are giving us a clue of where this place is at, or used to be, I should say. And then 14, go back to the scriptures in verse 14, it says, and the name of the third river was uh, Hedelikel. And that basically, that's another name for the Tigris River. And it says, it is the one that goes toward the east of Assyria. And basically, what we're looking at on a map is the Tigris is right here. Again, we don't know if the Tigris ran there prior to the flood, but it says it's east of Assyria. Right now, the Tigris is west of Assyria, but it was over here somewhere in there in Iran. But nonetheless, we're looking at the Fertile Crescent. Then it says the easy one that we all know now is in verse 14, it says the fourth river is the Euphrates. Well, we know where the Euphrates is at. If you go back to the map right here, the Tigris is right here. Euphrates is right here. That's modern day Iraq. Okay. So the theory is, and the idea is that the Garden of Eden, not Eden, Eden is the whole landmass. But the Garden of Eden, because of the four rivers coming out of this particular area, one particular one going this way, one going that way to Havilah, the Euphrates going up here, the Tigris going up here, and one it branching off the one, the idea, the theory, is that the Garden of Eden was somewhere right there in the Persian Gulf where Iran comes down, then you have Iraq, and then you have Kuwait right there in that little area. And some of it probably is now under the Persian Gulf waters, but in this in the area. Now, if you go there today, it's a complete desert. There's nothing there. There's no remnants of the Garden of Eden. The flood wiped this whole thing out and created desert-like conditions in this area. But our best hunch, theologically, is that the Garden of Eden was somewhere right here. Anyway, all this to say... We assume it's there, but what's the point? Why is Moses going over the rivers and everything? Because water to the ancients is a sign of blessing. It is a sign of wealth. It is a sign of fertility. It means everything to the ancients. Because their cities couldn't survive without water. And to us, you know, even in living in California, we know how important water is, especially in agriculture. But to them, gems and water mean everything to them. So what it's saying is this. God has provided the most idyllic conditions for the land, for man. Man will not even have to create reservoirs or dams or anything like that because in the mornings, the, the earth itself mists 
And these rivers water the ground so that it's a high water table. And everything is being lushed. And, and so man doesn't have to hardly do anything as far as developing the crops to eat from. So basically, God is saying, I've provided pretty much a very easy environment, a very rich environment for you guys to live and thrive in. Okay. So now here's where the provisions now of the covenant are going to come. If you have your handout that I gave you today, it's on the back side of that one particular handout. It says the Edenic covenant right there. Okay. So what we did so far, we've covered the first four. But now we're going to look today at five, six, and seven. Now, because of this wonderful, lush environment that God has provided, he's going to make man responsible over it. And humans are to work and worship and obey the Lord. You'll see this in verse 15. And then he'll forbid them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then they're going to be given a penalty if they do eat it. So we're going to finish off the Edenic covenant. But the first thing that comes rattling out of the box is... You don't get to sit in the lazy boy chair. You have to now work the environment. And so he's going to talk about that, and we're going to look at the implications of it. So let's go to verse 15. And this is all the flushing out of the Edenic covenant. Verse 15 says this, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Now that's interesting. He took the man and then put him in it, which indicates that Adam was created somewhere else. He was not created in the garden. This is very interesting. The rabbis looked at this text and looked at other texts and again theorized, and again, they they can't attach it to certain scriptures, but the rabbis theorized that Adam was created where the temple mount is. He was created from the clay and the dust of where the current temple mount is today. And I talked about that last week. And that he was created there and then transported by God to the garden and put there in the garden. Again, it's theory. I can't attach it to scripture either. But I find it very interesting that there's a connection with the temple mount, with the death of the Messiah, the creation of Adam, and Golgotha being the place of the skull, which was theorized by the rabbis that that's the place of Adam's skull, was buried there in that location. Again, it's all theory. It's very interesting. But we do know this. He was created outside of the garden. Wherever Adam was created, he was not created in the garden. The garden is the sanctuary of God. It is the garden temple. It's wallless. It doesn't have a floor. It doesn't have a roof. But it nonetheless is a garden temple. It is a place where God will commune with man in this location. So it makes sense that Adam wasn't created there because this is God's place, not so much Adam's. Okay? But he takes them. Now, interesting enough, that word in English says put. He put Adam in the garden. This is very interesting. The Hebrew is the same root as Noah's name, which means rest. So he puts Adam in the garden for rest and safety. That's where he will find rest and safety in this particular garden in the presence of God. And same thing goes for us. In the presence of God, we find that fellowship, that safety, that rest in God alone. And that's where this idea of putting him there means. Okay, so then what is he supposed to do there once he's put there? It says, 
to tend, or avad in Hebrew, and keep it, or shamer. Shamer. So it's avad and shamer. Tend and keep it. So the idea then becomes, in this environment, Adam and Eve are not just going to lazy, be lazy and lay around eating fruit and watching the animals play. They have to work the environment. So the first thing we take away from this is there's labor. Labor is not a curse. Labor is a blessing that God gives to man. So a lot of people say, well, what are we going to do in heaven? Well, it's interesting that it says Adam and Eve are going to labor here. And when we're in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, and it says this, his servants shall serve him. We labor in heaven. We labor for all eternity because labor is a blessing to us. It's how we're made. And we, we intuitively know this is what gives us meaning in life by laboring. Now you think about this. Work then becomes a gift of God. But think of how the pagans think of work. They see work completely different. They're trying to reduce the work week. They're trying to reduce their amount of hours they work. They try to not work, right? And their hallmark is laziness. And the problem we're seeing with today's society, the further you get away from meaningful labor the more trouble you get yourself into morally. Now, I want you to think about this. Think about people who are out of work sometimes, and sometimes that happens, but have been out of work for an extended long period of time. Like some of the folks on the streets that refuse to work. They've checked out of reality. They would rather do drugs and alcohol rather than labor. But that's not how God created man. But what, what happens to them? The longer they're out of work, as you see on the street, the more trouble they get themselves into. Believe it or not, labor, work, prevents evil. It restricts it to some degree. How so? If a person is working to provide for themselves and to provide for their families, they don't have a lot of time to get involved in wickedness and evil because they're trying to eke out a living. And then they're tired from that labor, and so they sleep at night. Right? I mean, this is basic stuff. But what happens to somebody who doesn't work and plays Fortnite till 3 in the morning? Right? What kind of things do they start getting involved in? And then they wake up at noon, and they're off schedule with everybody. Before you know it, they start getting into problems, do they not? There's an old saying, the idle mind is the devil's playground. That's true. It is true. If you have a lot of idle time, that's when you get in trouble. David, for example was not with his army when they were supposed to be fighting a battle. And what happened to him? Right? He's on a roof. He sees a gal. He wasn't even supposed to be there. He should have been with his army. He should have been at work with his guys. But because he decided to lounge around, he got himself into trouble. Work is extremely important for us. 
It keeps us going. It keeps, it gives us meaning. And, uh, this is why you see a lot of people who retire, they die within a year or two after retirement. Isn't that weird? Why is that? Because they know they, they once they retire, they don't have anything else left. They lose their identity because they put their identity in their work and they're not doing anything. Or all of a sudden their health just, just shuts them down. It's weird. It's the weirdest concept you've ever seen, but they stopped working. The idea then, if you do retire, and there's nothing wrong with retirement, it's that you go find work for the Lord to do, that you just don't simply drift, that you're just simply just not looking for the best soft serve ice cream you could possibly find, and that becomes your, what you're looking for in life, that you get into something very meaningful with your life, maybe something you finally get to do for the Lord that you couldn't do because you had to provide a living for yourself. But work is important. It's right there in the garden. But there's something more here. It's more than just labor. It's way deeper than that. I want you to think about this. The word avad means to serve. Interesting. It just doesn't mean physical work or physical labor. It means service for God. Serving God through labor. See, what people have to understand is whatever God has called you to do in your life, that labor, you're actually serving the king through it. Work as unto what? The Lord, right? When you go to work tomorrow morning, it's not that boss you don't like that you work for. You work for Jesus. That's who your boss is. That's who you're laboring for. What you see is an interesting dynamic. Unfortunately, the Catholic Church separated secular and sacred, and people's work became non-sacred. Unfortunately, that was a mistake. What you do is sacred because that's what God has called you to do. Labor is sacred. And whatever you do, which you're going to spend a majority of your life doing, you're working as unto the Lord. Everything matters what you do in your labor. Everything. So you have the Avad thing that's happening. But then the Shamer, very interesting. Very interesting, that Hebrew word. It means to keep. It means to obey the commands, but it also means to go further than that, just obeying the commands. It means to guard, like a military aspect. You're to guard something. So in one sense, you obey the commands, but in another sense, you guard something. Now, that's interesting. Adam and Eve are to labor for God but they are to guard the garden. Pray tell, what would you guard the garden from? Who would be a threat to the sanctuary of God? Who would be a threat to invading this area that's measured out by God as a temple garden? Adam, I want you to circle the perimeter and make sure nothing evil gets in here. So you and your wife will work the garden, but also at the same time, you will be guarding it from trespassers. You will be guarding it from somebody, something, some malevolent force. What is he saying to him? Adam, there is a threat coming your way. 
I need you to not only labor, but I need you to have a sword in your hand. Just as Nehemiah built the wall with a trowel in one hand and a sword in another, I need you to labor, but I need you to protect. And that's a principle we all have to understand. We all labor for the Lord, but don't forget that you guard. You guard something very precious. You guard the commandments of God. You guard the area that God has given you. For instance, you guard your family. You are to work the perimeter of your family. You are to protect them from an invading force, from an evil force, from an evil person, from an evil whatever. That is part of your duty. So many people, as you will see Adam and Eve, don't guard what's been given to them. And unfortunately, the same invader that will happen here will be the same invader that tries to get into your family will be the same invader that tries to get into the church, will be the same invader that tries to get into your personal life if you're not on guard, if you're not paying attention and checked out from reality and not understanding there's someone out there who wants to destroy you and would like nothing better than you to die. If you don't get that, you don't know how the game is being played. You have somebody, his name is Satan, He has a third of the fallen angels at his disposal bent on your and my destruction. And Adam and Eve is told, I need you to guard the perimeter. There's someone out there. There's a lot of them, by the way, who want to come after you. It is serious business, man. It is real deal stuff. And that's what we're facing. That's why God tells them, I need you to guard this place. It's an ominous warning. There's no walls. Yeah, because no walls will keep this guy out. No physical walls. There's no roof. That's right. No roof will keep this guy out because he's invisible. He's a spirit creature. And walls do not keep spirit creatures out. This is why it's a wall-less garden. Walls would be useless against him. Adam, the only thing that will protect you is you must guard the commandments I give you. You must keep them and obey them. That's the only way you're going to protect this. These words, avad and shamer, are priestly terms, by the way. They, these are the same priestly terms used for the priests, the Levitical priests that were in the garden, I'm sorry, in the, in the temple and in the tabernacle. The same words are actually being used. So Moses is picking up the same themes for the Levitical priests as Adam and Eve. He was to do what priests are doing. Guys, let me tell you this. You are a functioning priest for your family. You are to guard your family. You are to, the wife is not to guard it. You are. You are to know where evil is getting in. You are to know where the perimeter is at. Not your wife. That's Adam's duty. And unfortunately, too many guys are not circling the perimeter. They don't know what's happening. Let's get a little ahead. We'll look at this a little bit. Who did Satan go after? Adam or did he go after Eve? He went after Eve. Don't ever miss that lesson, guys. Adam wasn't doing the perimeter searching. So Satan goes right for the woman. 
He didn't go to Adam. He goes right for the woman. That pattern will not change. If the man refuses to guard the perimeter of his home, he will go straight for the wife. And false doctrine, heresy will enter in through that door and corrupt the entire family. Guys, I cannot tell you how many times I see this happening with people. The guys are passive, which is an Adam syndrome. And then you have an Eve syndrome where she's in charge. She's dealing with the serpent. And before you know it, the whole house goes upside down for the same thing that you're going to see in Genesis 3. Same pattern, same thing. Guys are passive spiritually. Women are wanting the position of the spiritual leader. That is a recipe for Satan to take full advantage of the family, and he will. He will. He'll use whatever rogue demon to do that. And before you know it, the home will be corrupt, the kids will be upside down, and the family's upside down, and they won't know what hit them. Satan will get them into a theological pretzel like he got with Eve and mess her mind up so bad she didn't know if she's coming or going. Don't think you can tango with Satan. Do not. He is way too intelligent. He knows us too. The only thing that preserves you is guard the commands. Do what I'm telling you to do, God's saying. Stay with it. Let's continue on. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man. This is the first command, by the way, in Scripture. Presupposes freedom, by the way. You're going to see a lot of freedom right here. But faith is required for this. Faith is required for this. Saying, here's the positive command. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. There's your freedom, Adam and Eve. Everything is yours. Notice the call of Moses is to the attention of abundance. He's telling Adam and Eve, you can have it all. It's just an orchard and orchards of all these wonderful produce that they can eat. It's all yours. It's a freedom of choice. It's a freedom of provision. Eat to your heart's content. Anything. This is, again, referring to the human diet. But verse 17, here's the restriction, and it's one restriction, one negative prohibition. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Let's go back to the tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's the one thing I don't want you touching. Have everything you want. Focus in on the abundance of what you have. But you can't have that one. Why? Well, we talked about the knowledge of the good and evil tree, but let me redo it again, just if you didn't hear that. The knowledge of good and evil is a Hebrew merism, which means it reflects all of morality, good and evil. To understand all of good and evil, you have to possess deity. You have to be God in order to understand this knowledge because you have to have all knowledge. You can't be limited in your understanding. This is why it's off limits. A human being can't know it all because they're finite creatures. They're made out of clay. Only God can have this knowledge. And by the way, the Hebrew says it's experiential knowledge. Now, man can experience good and evil by experience, but he has to do it by experience. But then what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is, once man tries to experience that, he's foisting his own moral autonomy on the situation, saying, I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to experience this, and I will determine whether or not this is good or bad. And he takes it upon himself to be the moral agent rather than God. And that's what that represents. This tree is off limits. 
because only I can possess all knowledge. You can't. All you can experience is experiential knowledge. You don't know all counterfactuals. You don't even know hypotheticals. You don't know how it goes down. And so because it's a prerogative of deity, that's why they're told it's off limits. It only is a prerogative of God's. You can't have this one. But why put it there? Because man must have a probationary period. He must be tested, just like you and I be tested, should be tested, because we're free will creatures. In order to experience our freedom, there has to be tests to be legitimate. And God does that. Will man decide if he's going to take the prerogative of God or will he just simply take it by faith what God says is right or wrong? Interesting thing, it's put in the negative. You shall not eat. It's like the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. You shall not murder. Notice the Ten Commandments are always in the negative. Have you noticed that? Do you know why? Because they're inalienable rights. Thou shall not steal refers to the positive that God gives, which man has the sacred right to personal property. And man can't take that away, even though the communists and Marxists want to take it away, right? But the inalienable rights that God gives, that's why they're said in the negative, because you can only take something away that man already has. But notice this is put in the negative like the Ten Commandments. Why? Because it only belongs to God. If you're going to try to do that, you can only do it through stealing it. And that's what they're going to attempt to do. It only belongs to him. You can't have this tree. I put on your paper a little handout for you. All the implications. I'm not going to go through them all, but I wanted you to see this. Of man's test. This is quite shocking. When you look at all the implications. If they disobey one command. And you can do your own Bible study on this if you want. But I want you to see at least all the implications that if man decides to use contrary choice and disobey God by this one command, this is all the implications involved in it. And it's just not simple. It's profound. It's deep. And you can read each one of them. But the bottom line, if they disobey they are without excuse, and all of these ramifications will go into play if they disobey it. It's, it's almost staggering to see how many implications are there in just one disobedient aspect. Would man assume that because he was given authority over the earth, that he was independent of God and exempt from God's law? And you just keep going on and on. What is the test? The test is this. Will man... Choose life, or will man choose power? That's the test. Life or power? The tree of life, if you pass the test, you could have access to the entire tree of life. But if you choose power, because they want the power of God, the power of deciding morality for themselves, of being independent, autonomous from God, that's power. And understand what power means, guys, because it's what you're seeing play out in our world today, the quest for power. Power, the ability to judge right and wrong, by the way, is more than what you think. Power allows people not only just to satisfy all their wants, to not have any wants. They don't want to be in subjection to having wants. 
It's more than just that. Because people can say, well, I just want money just because I don't want any more needs in my life. It's way more than that. It's part of it, but it's way more than that. Power then turns to saying, I want life my way. I want people to treat me a certain way. And I will do it through my power. I will use my power for coercion. I will use my power for people to submit to my will. I will use power to try to overcome disease and death. And if I have to, I will use power to crush people. I will use power to seek revenge on those who treat me bad. Power will corrupt us. We can't handle it. It is a prerogative that only God can handle. And as you see with Satan, he could not handle it. And neither can human beings. Look at those in life who are given the most power. They can't handle it, can they? They crush their enemies, don't they? They seek revenge and they wipe out millions of people, don't they? Mao Zedong, Hitler, Stalin, you name them. Every one of them, when they had power, what did they do? They all thought they would use power for good, didn't they? But it ended up destroying them in the end. And you must understand this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is about seeking that power that only God can have. Deciding right and wrong. Hitler decided right and wrong, didn't he? He decided that six million Jews should be wiped off the face of the planet. In his mind, that was moral. You see how it works? When you have that kind of power, you can determine right and wrong and then enforce it. Which is exactly what's happened in American politics. These radical Communists have infiltrated into the American government and are forcing through power their will on the American people. That's what's happening. It's all about power. That's what politics is about. It's about power, right? Whether it's in California or federal or state or whatever, it doesn't make a difference. But here's the consequence, and you know what the consequence that's coming, don't you? Go back to the scriptures. For in the day, the day, that very day that you do this, something's going to happen. The environment will change. You'll go from life, and then you'll go to death. You'll switch that day instantaneously if you try this. I'm warning you. Don't do this, God's saying. And so look what the rest of the scripture says. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Hebrew is moth. Tamuth. It's an emphatic in the Hebrew. It's dying, you shall die. It's emphatic that this will happen to you this very day. What does it imply? It implies a death sentence. Death in the Hebrew doesn't mean cessation of life. It means separation. Separation. The first thing that you see here is that they will be separated and have an experience of death from God. That day you do this, you will separate from me. I will separate from you. And there will be a great chasm between me and you until this is reconciled. 
And that barrier between God will be erected. It will lead to spiritual death is what we call it, spiritual separation. And by the way, when they did this, which we will see, that sin nature then will be passed on to the progeny of Adam and Eve. And you and I are recipients of that sin nature, according to Romans 5. And then it will end in physical death. When we separate from God, who is life? He says, you're going to you separate from me first of all spiritually, but then eventually it will kill you physically. And 930 years later, Adam died. Now, we die quicker now. We're in a different time period than what they were in, but we're dying. And you know what's killing us? Our sin. Sin, the death principle that sin brings into us, is killing us physically. And every time we introduce sin into our lives, we introduce the death principle, and it kills us a little bit more. It kills us. We are dying because of that. That's why God is called life. Choose life. Choose him. And unfortunately, you already know the end of the story. We'll talk about more when we get into the temptation of that separation and, and all that entails there. But let's do some application. Notice what you will see is that Adam and Eve will focus only on the restriction, but not on the abundance of freedom that they have, not on what they were given. They become obsessed almost with the restriction. With the minute that God says, this is off limits, this is off limits, and they don't even have, they don't possess a sin nature at this point in time, that's the first thing they run to. They, they first go to the restriction. Wow. And you'll see this whole theme all through the Bible. God will say no to individuals in the Bible. And you know it very well. No, Satan, you cannot be like me. No, you will not rebel. I will put you down and judge you. You can't be like me, Satan. No, Adam and Eve, to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't possess that power. Only I can wield that power. No, Cain, you can't bring your own sacrifice to me. No, Abraham, Ishmael will not be the promised son. No, Moses, you're not getting out of this. You're going to Pharaoh, and you're going to speak to him. No, Moses, don't strike the rock twice. No, Moses, you're not going into the promised land. No, Samson, you will not shirk your responsibilities, and you will not have Delilah. No, David, you won't be king for another 25 years. No, David, you can't have Bathsheba. She's off limits. No, David, you will not build the temple. Your son will. No, Peter, you will not prevent me from sacrificing. No, Peter, put down your sword. No, Paul, you're not going to Asia. You're going to Greece. No, Paul, I will not remove your thorn from your flesh. My grace is sufficient. And even to the Son of God, the Son of Man, will you let this cup pass before me? No. Why? What's the idea here? 
What's the lesson we're supposed to learn? Again, there's no doubt we focus on the restriction, but what, what is God trying to teach us? What is he trying to teach Adam and Eve? The whole theme through the Bible is no to, no to the, the restrictions. It's this. Don't miss this one. God is teaching us the principle of sacrifice. That you must be willing to give up the best part for the salvation of the whole. That's the principle. You can have all of the garden, but not this one. This one belongs to me. Sacrifice this one, and you get all of it. That's the principle. Israel, come to me with your best offerings, first fruits, best of your flock. I don't want the second. I want the best part of the meat. Why? Sacrifice the best for the whole. Jesus said this, if your right eye causes you to sin, do what with it? Cut it off. Cut it out. If your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to come into heaven maimed and, and crippled because sacrifice the part for the whole. Be willing to give up something. The rich young ruler, he wouldn't give up his money. He would not sacrifice the money for the whole. And Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? If you want the one thing, you will end up causing yourself death. Give up the one thing and you will save the whole. Down to even the Messiah. God even ex- it gives us it as an example. I will sacrifice something very precious to me. My own son. In order to, to save the whole of humanity. I will give up my best to save the whole. It's the same principle. You're never going to get away with that. I mean, it's, it's littered all through the Bible. And so what we do is we focus in on what is forbidden. It excites us. Stolen water is sweet, is it? Right? That's what the Proverbs say. We say, well, it would be good for me, Brandon. When we say that, we're saying we know more than God. We're saying we have all knowledge that, man, if I just had a billion dollars, Brandon, you know what I could do with that? Wow, I could do a lot of good with that. Yeah, but you know what would happen? You would be destroyed by it. Look at Bill Gates. Look at Mark Zuckerberg. Look at Bezos, who owns Amazon. The richest people in the world, George Soros, How well is that money working for them? They're all evil. They're all wicked. They're doing some of the most evilest things you could possibly imagine with that money. They think they're doing good, right? But they're not. They're evil. Sacrifice that which is love the best. So you might have to be giving up something right now that's amoral. And God's saying no to that. No, you can't have that. It's off limits. No, it's not in the cards for you. Because if I gave that to you, it would kill you. It's kind of like this. You might have heard this illustration. You ever figure out how to catch a monkey? They figured out how to catch a monkey. If you go in Africa and the places like even in the rainforest and in Brazil and different places, it's an easy way to catch monkeys. You get a log that's pretty heavy 
and you bore a little hole on the top of it and make sure the log is empty inside. You put a little food in the bottom of the log and that monkey will come and he will reach his hand down in there and to grab the food. But the minute he makes a fist, he can't pull out. The log stays on his arm and he can't pull out. Well, he's stuck because the log's too heavy. And so you know what they do? They just walk up to him and they come and they capture the monkey. It's as, as easy as, as anything. Because you know why? The monkey won't let go. He won't let go of the one thing he wants. He thinks that food is everything. But he will, because of that food, he will sacrifice his own body in order to make sure he gets that food. That's how dumb that monkey is. He won't let go. And I think to myself, there's sometimes in my life where I'm like that monkey. God has put a restriction and sometimes it's just an amoral restriction. No, no. But I'm holding on to that thing, saying, no, I need that. I want that. This would be good for me, God. Just let me have it. And I just keep holding on to it. And I'm like that monkey. I won't let it go. I just keep holding on to it. And then before you know it, a trapper comes, and you're caught. And you think, how stupid it was to hold on to that. How stupid my thinking was that I thought I know more than God. That's, that, that's, that's what this tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents to all of us. It's the test you will face tomorrow. It's the test of restriction. It's the test of God saying no to you. And the only thing you can do is submit to him, understand that you may not understand the no, but he does, and he knows why. And as the Messiah said, not my will, but yours be done. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.